Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, this is Cody Sperber, The Clever Investor, and if you want to learn how to successfully invest in your connections, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappell. Welcome back to the show. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know. If you agree, then keep listening for tips on how to cultivate meaningful connections the right way. If you disagree, then tune in anyway to let me prove you wrong with my journey. My name is Travis Chapel, and this is the Build Your Network Podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. I am here all the way out in Tempe, Arizona, interviewing one of the masters of the flipping houses game for all of you real estate investors out there, the clever investor himself, Mr. Cody Sperber. What's up, my What's man? What's up, man? How Appreciate are you? Appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for, for having, having me on. Me. Oh, thanks for having me in the office, man. You guys are brand new office now, expanding, making some moves. I have, everything looks really great. I can't wait to see the finished product. Thanks. Yeah, excited. So there's a lot of things that we could go into here, man. Uh, but first, always, always, always got to go back to a little bit of context for everybody that's listening or watching. So. Walk me through, let's say, nine, ten-year-old Cody Sperber. What was life like? Context mm. and, you know, uh, were you good at school? Did you like sports? You know, how was the, the family life, home life, all that good stuff? Wow, that's a good framing of that. Um, nine-year-old Cody Sperber, well, f- first off, am I allowed to cuss on this? You are allowed to do whatever you want. I'll keep it down, but I, w- <laughs> I was kind of a shithead. Okay. You know, if I was to be blunt with it, you know, I was very hyperactive as a kid, but my dad didn't want me to take hyperactive medicine. I, my, my mom put me on Ritalin because I was just going nuts and the teachers yeah. were having a really hard time. And my dad used to say, I'll give it to him. And then he would switch out the Ritalin for a vitamin. Oh, really? And send me to school and be like, I don't know why he keeps acting up. It must not be working. We got to take him off of it. And he would, 
he would actually say, this is your future superpower, don't screw this up. And mm. he, would, he, he had the foresight of understanding. What did your dad do? Um, he's actually my CFO. He's like two oh, doors really? down. Yeah, he, my dad um, was uh, in the education world for many, many years, like in like technical colleges. And mm. he was, you know, just in the executive side of technical colleges, helping them grow their, their companies. And um, anyways, he just, I, I was really tough to manage and deal with. And we didn't have a lot of money. We were living in an apartment when I was nine and 10 years old or yeah. real small rental houses. And so he just, you know, was trying the best to deal with me. My brother's a lot older than okay. me, so he moved out of the house. So I was pretty much a single kid. Okay. And uh, yeah, so uh, my parents were hardworking, really good people. My mom's extremely, extremely religious. Okay. My dad is not. And so there was that dynamic like going me, on yeah. Yeah, in our house. You know, my mom uh, uh, was very much, you know, trying to get me to go to church mm -hmm. and like... It was just like a, a community type church? Yeah, or? just okay. like a... A, Christian. a Christian church, yeah. but my grandparents, they were Pentecostal, Okay, I think is what it is. Like speaking in tongues and things? Oh, yeah. I would walk into the house and my, my grandpa would full-blown light into tongues and, uh, you know, then tell me someday in the future you're going to be a preacher and a big, a, a big deal yeah. in the preaching world. Right. And I would be this little kid just scared to death, like, oh my God, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with this information. But yeah, so as a little kid, you know, I... Uh, um, wasn't really passionate about anything. I didn't play sports. No. I was always really little. Okay. Um, I didn't grow like the rest of the kids. I played, I played some baseball and some Pop Warner football and stuff, but yeah. once we hit like eighth, ninth grade and all the other kids started growing, I didn't. Yeah. And my son right now is going to deal with the same challenges because he's the littlest of all the kids in his class right mm. now. Yeah. And he's not growing very much. And I'm like, oh man, because it was tough. Yeah. And uh, what I did have though, I was very sharp. Okay. And so I felt as if I wanted to be an adult as a kid because I thought like an adult. So, so sharp in a, in a school context? No, or, okay, no, so no. I wasn't a very good student because I couldn't concentrate. The, okay. It was like that. T it's the standard entrepreneurial curse now yeah, yeah. where it's like whatever I'm into, I'm obsessed over. And right. I go down the rabbit hole and I love self-education. I love reading. I love listening to podcasts. The things that I'm not into, just I, I neglect mm. to the extreme. Yeah. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are like that. And so, but as a kid, um, I wasn't a good student. I cheated on my schoolwork a lot if I could get away with it mm -hmm. or yeah. I got caught a lot. <laughs> I, I was also a little bit of a young hustler. I started selling candy out of a backpack. I went to my dad one day and I said, hey, I want to make money because I wanted um, um, garbage pail kid cards. Oh, yeah. And I said, hey, I want, I want you know, some garbage pail kid card. Can I have 40 bucks? And he said, absolutely not. I, we don't have that kind of extra money. But here's what I will do. I will give you a loan for $40 and you can sign a contract. And he was teaching me this concept of, yeah, you know, business. And I said, what are you talking about? Just give me the 40 bucks. And he said, no, I'm not giving it to you. And after like two weeks of him holding out, finally I was like, fine, I'll sign the contract. What, what, what do I do with the 40 bucks? And he goes, I'm going to loan it to you and you need to start a business. And so he had me list out things that I could potentially do as a kid, yeah. paper routes, you know, cleaning up dog crap, that right. kind of stuff. And I landed on selling candy out of my, so he took me to like a Sam's Club or whatever was around back then. And he bought me $40 worth of candy and I took it to school, Laffy Taffy's, Blow Pops, that kind of stuff. And yeah. I sold them all first day. And I came back and I gave him, I had his, all his money back. Plus I had some left over, which was now funding he took me back and 
uh, bought more candy. Yeah, nice. That whole operation lit up pretty fast, and uh, then I just got smart after about two weeks of hustling candy. I started having friends come to me, and I'm like, look, I'll give you candy. <laughs> and you guys, I'll front it. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm the, I'm the plug the for bank. the candy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I did that, and I got my Garbage Pail Kids cards, and then I upgraded to a scooter and yeah. some other stuff. So I had that in me. Right. Uh, but it was like, it was like a on or off. Yeah. When I was into, when I wanted something, I lit it up. Yeah, it wasn't constant. It wasn't constant. And I really wasn't ambitious. Okay. I don't want that to come across as like, oh, I had this yeah, thing in me. I wasn't an ambitious kid. I played video games. By seventh grade, I was smoking weed hmm. constantly. You yeah. know, my, me and my friends were... Seventh grade, huh? Seventh grade. Man. I remember it, too, because my friend Tyler and I were walking, and uh, we were... we. I would stay over at his house. My parents gave me a lot of freedoms that okay. you probably shouldn't have as a kid. <laughs> and, uh, the type of freedoms uh, that yeah, lead to yeah, smoking weed. weed at some point. So I, I uh, went over to my friend Tyler's house and spent the night, and we snuck out, and we were walking on the golf course, and we came across this guy. I want to say his name was Julio or Jose or something, but he was like the little neighborhood dealer, and he introduced us to weed for the first time, and we smoked weed on the golf course, and it was like... That was was it. this like a full-grown man? Oh, well, he was probably high school. Oh, okay. Probably high, a few, he was probably 10th or 11th grade, okay. and we were in junior high. So not quite as sketchy. I was picturing like this homeless dude. Like, <laughs> some guy he had watches in, in, yeah. in a trench coat on this and weed. <laughs> I was like, man, you guys were trusting kids, man. No, we were just, he was on the golf course. I remember that because I don't know why we were on the golf course, but that was the first time I, I ever tried it. And so we started doing that, and then I, I was like, entrepreneurial in some way so I'm like hey let's sell some weed yeah yeah you know like literally I was hustling from that perspective um, thankfully I never really did too much with that yeah <laughs> uh, so yeah. now so now coming into like high school years wh- how did all this start to translate like how how, how did <clears throat> how did the entrepreneurial stuff the ability to make money when you like really put your mind to it play into your confidence versus things like playing sports or being you know really academic or anything yeah. like that. So my dad would get fired about every three years. Hmm. And so I moved around a lot as a kid. And if you think about like showing up at a new school, let's just call it 10 times in my childhood, hmm. I had to make friends. So I developed certain skills as a little guy with a smart mouth that was kind of funny, yeah. but you know, the funny, I didn't know where the line was, so I also got beat up a lot. <laughs> and uh, I was always trying to make friends. and. I didn't understand at the time because it was so painful and I was getting bullied and stuff, but I I was developing a skill of understanding some human psychology on some level of Mm. understanding how to influence people. And then by the time I got to high school, uh, I didn't know, I knew I wasn't going to be good at sports and none of the jocks liked me. You know, I I, I hung out over at the smoking section with like the the stoners and that kind of stuff. I uh, was wanting to be a ninth grade history teacher because in, uh, up to that point, there was a teacher named Mr. Safransky that really made a big impact on me. Mm. I, I don't remember any of my teachers' names. Mm. I remember his because he knew how to work with a guy like me. Isn't that crazy how and you he, can like, pull that out just from one person taking the time? It was it. It yeah. was the, it was, I, if I, I don't think he's alive anymore because it was so long ago and he was fairly old back then. But like, man, if I can kiss that guy on the lips, I would because he changed the trajectory of what I be- thought and how I believed in myself and what I thought I could do with my life. Yeah. And uh, so I started going down the rabbit hole of like wanting to be a ninth grade history teacher. And then the backup plan was being a marine biologist. Okay. So I was really passionate and into those things. So I would read a lot of books about those topics. And my dad 
took me scuba diving a lot and got me certified. And so it was going to be one of those two things. But by high school, I really had no clue what I was going to do. And I was starting to panic. And I was running out of you know, time. Right, right. And my parents were like, you, you got to go to community college. You got to do something. And so um, I went and saw the high school counselor. And they pretty much said, there's not a lot of things that you should really be focusing on so just run with the history or run with the marine biology so um, I enrolled in a Mesa Community College and I went for one day and I remember walking through the campus and the, every step I took felt like 10,000 pounds hmm. because I knew I shouldn't be there it yeah. just was not my DNA it wasn't I didn't feel right I was scared to death and I didn't want to go yeah and so I never went back I, I ran from that hmm. And when I went home and I was almost in tears, I was telling my dad, I don't, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I'm not passionate. These are the only two things I think I want to do, but I really don't want to go to college. And my dad talked to me and said, why don't you try the Navy? Hmm. The Navy is a great path for you to travel the world and get some time to figure out what you want to do. And then the MGI bill will pay for your school if you want to go. And because my dad didn't have any money saved for yeah, college. Yeah. So like community college was like the best I was going to get. Right. And so I enrolled in the military. Hmm. And on day one, we got, after I got a boot camp and I went to San Diego to get on a boat, mm -hmm. a ship, we were pulling out of San Diego Harbor. And the second we broke through the harbor, we went up and we went down and I threw up all over the place. Oh, no. And I didn't know coming from Arizona how seasick I would get. I've been on like scuba dive boats and stuff like yeah, that, but yeah. we were never really going super far out in the ocean. Right. And it was mainly just walking in from the shore, that kind of stuff. And uh, I got violently seasick. And wow. so marine biology went out the window. No and uh, got out of the military. Or while I was in the military, my dad gave me the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Real quick, before we move on, what, what do they do in that situation? Like, do they, you just stay on the boat and oh, yeah. deal with it? And yeah, get you got to get your legs sea, eventually? You got to get your sea legs. Yeah. And so we, were, we went from San Diego to Hawaii. I threw up for seven days straight. I was in the infirm whatever you call it, infirmary. The infirmary. Yeah. They had me up on IVs and all kinds of medicine and stuff. I finally got my sea legs the day we were pulling in. <laughs> and then you pull in and then it resets the next yeah. time you go out. And so oh, I, I had to take Dramamine every time we ever went out in the open ocean. W when you were on the boat, did you have that s same or similar feeling that you did when you walked into community college or was it completely different? No, it was different because it was exciting. Imagine being, I, j I just turned 18 yeah. and I'm in Thailand. Right. No parents. Yeah. You know, it's like totally you, different world. If you've ever been to Phuket, Thailand, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. You know, it's just went. It's, <laughs> like, it's Disneyland for adults. And so I'm I'm in Phuket by myself. I I'm on Bangalore know, Street. Oh, you you, you, yeah. you get off the boat and there was probably, I don't know, how many ten thousand military people coming ashore, you know, yeah. as the whole fleet is right. going to Thailand. And there's thousands of women and scooters and I, I don't know how I did it, but I'm driving around Thailand on the back of a scooter with a, I rented an eagle. <laughs> and because there's no whole bar, you're like, there's n nothing you can't right. do there. And I saw an eagle and this guy had it. And I'm like, I want to rent the eagle. So next thing you know, I'm on the back of a scooter with this bird on my shoulder and we're cruising <laughs> through Thailand. So I didn't have that fear. It was, it was very exciting. Yeah. Uh, but I was still just screwing off. Yeah. Right. Right. And uh, my dad bought me the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad one time when we were in the Persian Gulf and I w we were just going in circles, I, I started reading it and I couldn't put it down because it was the first time in my life I ever heard about an, what the difference of assets and liabilities is. Mm, yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, how come nobody's really talked to me about this concept before? Right. 
And uh, I knew that a, the richest guy in my hometown when I was growing up owned real estate because he had his name on the side of a building and it says Polak Investments. And I would walk to school by that building every single day and I knew, because I stopped in there one day, asked him what he did, yeah. he's a real estate investor. So I knew that real estate created wealth. I just thought that's for rich people, something, something too difficult that I'll do at some point in my life. Right. But that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, really got me thinking like, okay, I wonder how I can actually start to get into the real estate business. But then I put it down, didn't think anything of it, got out of the military, finally enrolled in college now that the military is paying for it. Yeah. And one day while I was going to college, a friend of mine named Jeremy asked me to go to lunch. And I went to lunch with him. He pulled up in a brand new Mercedes, $80,000 car, Yeah. paid cash for it. I'm like, how did you get the car? And he's like, this is like a friend of yours from just a friend of high mine school from high school. Yeah. So you were so while you were in the military, he was obviously doing something. Well, yeah. When, when we, once we got out of high school, um, I think he actually went to college. And while he was in college, he met a mortgage guy that got mm. him into real estate. So anyway, he flipped a house, made eighty grand, bought this car. Gotcha. Pulls up at lunch in this brand new car. I said, "How did you get it?" And he said, "I flipped a house." And I'm like, "How did you do that? You don't have that kind of money yeah. to go invest in real estate." And he's like, oh no, there's this thing called creative real estate, different. And he literally penciled it out on a napkin, this concept of wholesaling, which to me was super foreign because at the time I thought you needed a real estate license or deep pockets or a good Mm -hmm. credit score, that kind of stuff. And he's telling me that there's this other world of real estate. And uh, I kind of, I didn't believe him. I thought it was a scam. And I was like, dude, you're full of crap. No way. But I took the napkin Mm. with me. And over the next week or two, I just kind of kept glancing at it, stewing over it, trying to think like, why does nobody teach you this stuff? How do I not know that this exists? Right. And so then, this is pre-YouTube you know, YouTube university and all that right. stuff. Right. Um, if you wanted to learn real estate, you either went to a seminar or a workshop or something like that. There was very limited information online. There were some <coughs> forums and stuff, but it wasn't like it is today. Yeah. No social media. Right. Not easy to ac- ask questions. This was... What, what 2002 okay got ish got yeah 2002 2003 and so i uh i started going down this real estate educational rabbit hole by flying all over the country i would i would either borrow money from my dad or put on my credit card and i would go to these seminars and workshops and i would learn you know these concepts of creative real estate hmm. wholesaling rehabbing seller financing you know all these there's a million ways yeah. to buy a house that doesn't require your money. You can yeah. use other people's money or um, the seller that owns the house can carry back the, the paper. And so I started learning about all this stuff and I started getting really excited, but it was almost like information overload. My mm. first year sucked because I was trying to figure it out. I was trying to actually go out and do, like I would literally go page one, read it, and then I'd try to go do it. Okay, gotcha. By the time I got to page eight, I was so confused. I'm like, why does page seven not lead to page (laughs) eight? And then it's not like linear. Like, it didn't work like that. And so it took me nine months of me trying to get a deal. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't, nothing happened. And by then I was probably about 30 grand in credit card debt. I probably went to 25 or 30 seminars. Yeah. I was just fed up and uh, one day I had a deal. I almost had a deal at the finish line. It was the last day before the deal was supposed to close. The deal fell apart and I remember being so defeated that I was like, all right, real estate's not for me. This isn't gonna work and I I threw in the towel and um, I filled out a resume to get a job as a bookkeeper because I needed to pay my credit card bills, which were now due. Right. 
and uh, I went and got a job as a bookkeeper. And that was what you had gone to school for, to college? No, I was going to school for finance. Okay. Bookkeeping was kind of in the wheelhouse, but I mean, nobody wants to grow up and be a bookkeeper, really. You know? <laughs> Maybe an accountant. But nobody's, yeah. well, I don't want to yeah. say that. Sorry, bookkeepers, if you're <laughs> yeah. listening or watching this. Uh, but it that definitely, I wasn't good at math. Yeah. I wasn't. Yeah. I it actually, wasn't what you were supposed to do. I actually do. lied on my resume. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I lied on my resume, and it, they, the guy said, I need a bookkeeper, and you need to start immediately. And then when I went for the interview, he said, do you have any bookkeeping experience? And I said, oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And then I went, <laughs> at, he said, you're hired. You start tomorrow. And so I left, and I went to the bookstore, and I bought bookkeeping for dummies. <laughs> and I read it all that night. I had to get a job. Oh, I had to right. make money. And, right. um, so that lasted like three to four months. Okay. And uh, interesting thing, I got a job as a bookkeeper for a local real estate developer. Hmm. And so I was, there was my way of quitting, but not quitting. Yeah, right. And so I was like in the, in, in the business, but I was watching the amount of money he was making because hmm. I'm running his books. Yeah. And uh, I was getting more pissed off every single day, sitting in traffic. I literally had a cubicle. It was the typical like right. nightmare scenario. The story, yeah. Yeah. And uh, about four months into it, I'm complain every single day to my wife Shannon who was my girlfriend at the time and uh, around that time I had a good friend named Zach Bali and he said hey I'm going to this real estate seminar in San Francisco you want to go and I'm like nope not happening no I'm not doing it <laughs> and I shut it down and him and my wife kind of tag teamed me and she was saying you're so miserable yeah. every day you're complaining you're you're acting like a total loser right now you're giving up and I don't mind you like going to get a job and doing whatever you got to do, but don't complain about it if you're going to do, right. be a book, be a great bookkeeper or go or do something, different. Or go do something right. different. And, uh, so they kind of twisted my arm and said, look, it's, if you just think of it as nothing more than a vacation with your good friend, just go do it. And Zach was promising me, this is different than anything you've ever seen. And I've heard that a few times, but I was like, okay, I love Zach. Let's go do this. And I showed up in this seminar put on by a guy who has recently, well, not recently, probably eight, nine years ago, passed away. His name was Jack Miller. Hmm. And if you look up Jack or if you ever knew of Jack Miller, he was one of the kind of grandfathers of the creative real estate model. Okay. And he, he I went into this room. There was about 300 or 400 people in this room. And all the people I bought courses from were in the audience frantically taking notes. Mm. And I remember I walked in and it instantly felt different. And mm. I was like, oh, this is this is different. Yeah. Maybe this is what I was looking for. All the power players in there. And Jack was up at the podium telling the greatest war stories and yeah. showing you how to slice and dice income streams and create money out of nowhere and be resourceful. And uh, after the first day, I went on break and I went to... Um, the bar to get some food, and that's where I met my first mentor. His name was Lyle. Mm. Lyle was probably 70 years old at the time, and we were talking at the bar, and we just hit it off, and he was a real estate OG. Had, I don't even know how many tens of millions of dollars in his self-directed Roth, really? all created from nothing, all creative real estate deals mm. over like a 40-year period. And he literally had Adidas sweatpants pulled up to like his nipples. <laughs> he was all wrinkly and like disheveled, but wearing the big old man Velcro yeah, shoes, totally. shuffling yeah. around. But he was hilarious and he was just exactly what I needed at the time because he taught me things that you can't learn in books. Hmm. And sometimes going down, and I'm in, in the education business, I think there's certain things you could do on, by yourself through self education and watching videos or listening to 
audiobooks and that kind of stuff. And there's certain things that you just have to learn on the job yeah. or from people that have been there and done that. And totally. he taught me those kind of things. And I remember we would, he had this little rickety whiteboard and we would sit there for hours and he would just show me different ways. He called it transactional engineering. It teach me different ways to approach a seller and a buyer to put deals together in the most creative ways so that way everybody walks away feeling like a winner, but you're finding these little hidden profit centers in a deal that most people don't see. Yeah. And when I started looking through that lens and he just worked with me, I got to my first deal and it happened pretty quickly. Like within two months, I got a, I got a big deal. Yeah. And it was for $40,000. It was the first deal I ever did. And that was more money that I would have made as an entire year as a bookkeeper. Wow. And I remember all that fight for nine months, then yeah. quitting, then going back at it, then going to this seminar, then getting this mentor, and then finally having a breakthrough. And I remember standing at the bank getting ready to deposit this check. So it's $40,000 in profit? Prof, profit. Okay. And I remember thinking, this is going to change my life. Like, this is that moment I've been waiting for, a yeah. sign, a path. Of, and um, when, when you go through that evolution and it becomes real, and internally you internalize it and you go, okay, I could do this for my life. And I realized I could do this time and time again. Yeah. And this was my pathway to creating the money that I needed to be able to go buy the real estate that I actually dreamed of owning someday. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I cashed that check and I did three things immediately. I bought my wife a ring because I knew if I didn't propose, I was going to lose like one of the greatest things that ever happened. And she deserved it. She put up with a lot. <laughs> I quit my job as a bookkeeper, right? Uh, I actually did four things. I gave some money to my parents, mm. which, you know, supporting me in just, yeah. they, they needed some money at the time. And so I felt so great being able to support them back. Right. And then the fourth thing was something for me. And I think anybody who is fighting hard for their dreams that's listening to this, it's so easy to get caught up in just like setting a goal, going after it, hitting the goal, and then immediately setting a new goal and going after that and immediately setting a new goal. And you almost forget to celebrate along the way because as entrepreneurs, we're always wanting more. Right. Especially when you can compare yourself to all the Instagram people, you know, and easily look at somebody who's like, oh, they're doing better than I am. So you diminish your own accomplishments. Today, it's probably harder than ever. Yeah. Seeing other people's walls and their lifestyles. Yeah. Their highlight reels on their social media. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, what was important to me, um, I wasn't thinking about like mansions and jets and all that stuff. For me at the time, I just wanted to sleep well Hmm. because for so long, I was stressed out financially. And when you're stressed out financially, you don't, like I couldn't sleep. My wheels were spinning constantly about my credit card debt and just these fears of like, oh man, my friends already think I'm nuts. My parents have told me now 40 times why this is the worst idea in the world and I need to just focus on college and focus on getting a job. And uh, you know, I'm losing friendships over all of this and I wasn't sleeping. And so I went straight to the bed store and I bought the most expensive Tempur-Pedic mattress that I could afford. And it was literally up on a thing spinning around with lights on it. And I'm like, yeah, I want that one. And I still have that bed to this day. Um, It was the California King and it was amazing. And uh, I remember thinking, this is for me. I'm going to sleep like a baby tonight. And it was a gift that I bought myself. And so that's awesome. uh, uh, Obviously, after that happened, the, the distance between deal zero and deal one, having to go through that learning curve was a lot longer than the distance between deal one and two. 
it, everything started to condense. And two and ten. And, and two and yeah, ten. Right, and then right. it just, what, all those seeds you're planting, all yeah. those relationships, all those trial and errors. I've had partnerships fall apart and I've gotten sued and I've sued people and like just all this experience that you learn through doing yeah. deals and becoming a deal maker uh, makes it to where uh, obviously I upped my goals mm -hmm. and I went from just wanting to make $3,000 a month and being able to quit my job as a bookkeeper and just being able to do real estate full time. I remember getting to a point where I was making 10 grand a month wholesaling houses mm. and I'm like, I don't know, this sounds kind of crazy, but could I do 25 grand a month? Right. And then you hit that and then it's like 50, yeah. 100. Right. And then, you know, your, your thing starts to scale. But I did something that was really smart. And my mentor forced me to do this is I used my wholesale profits to fund my real estate acquisitions. Hmm. So if you're listening to this and you want to become a real estate millionaire, you're not that far off. And if you think about it like this, um, wholesaling, if you've never heard of it, it's the purest form of the no money down deal. It's basically finding homeowners or houses that are distressed. And there's, if you look down the uh, average American street right now, 90% of the houses and the owners that own them, ha those houses, they're not motivated to sell at a discount. Yeah. They're not going to, like if you're not motivated, you're not gonna sell yeah. at a discount. But there's like 10% on any street that's motivated going through a divorce, had a death in the family, lost their job, being relocated, medical issues, legal issues, foundational issues, fire, flood, you know, right. the house is old and ugly. It's the one on the street that has a flat roof where every other one's pitched roof. Right. Some functional obsolescence, something is going on with the, the property. Those are the types of deals I go after. Yeah. And if you are good at marketing, especially nowadays with social media, it's not that difficult to find free or cheap avenues to get out in front of these types of people and get this message that, hey, if you want cash and you want to close quickly, we can help you. Yeah, yeah. And so we'll show up, we'll work out a deal, we'll put their house under contract. And what most people don't understand is with creative real estate, it's not like traditional real estate where you either hire a real estate agent or you get your license and that's how you make money buying and selling properties for other people. With creative real estate, we're, we're creating the profits by providing a service for other real estate investors. Mm. Um, and so um, once you put a house under contract, what's interesting is you have um, what's called equitable rights in the property. And all that means is per the contract, you have certain rights to that property. Just like if you sign a contract to rent somebody's property, you mm. now have the right to use the property. Mm. Well, if I go to buy your house, and I fill out a contract, let's say it's worth 200,000, but I agree to buy it for 150, mm -hmm. and you say, okay. And I say, we'll close in 20 days. Mm -hmm. Well, during that 20 day period, I kind of control your real estate because technically you shouldn't be able to go sell it to somebody else, right? right? right. And so during that 20 days, I kind of have this window to go and shop that paperwork around town to see if anybody else wants to step into my shoes and get it. And this, that's the concept of wholesaling is being a real, a real estate middleman yeah, or right. matchmaker. And so when I, once I, I kind of thought of it like, okay, how many of these types of deals where I'm just, I find a seller, I negotiate, I put their house under contract, I find a cash buyer, which is a landlord or a rehabber, and I find them and I just put deals together. And I'm on, in 2019, my average wholesale fee was $11,202, hmm. right? So think about this, just try to, I'm gonna try and get these numbers off the top of my head, but think about this. Let's say you wanna become a real estate millionaire in 2020. Yeah. Okay, how do we do that? Well, if I'm making on average, let's just say $10,000 per wholesale flip. Mm -hmm. 
how much real estate do we, how many wholesale deals do I need to do in order to buy real estate to become a real estate millionaire? So let's just work backwards. Let's say you have a house that you could buy for 200,000, but you could buy it for 150, mm -hmm. right? Needs work. There's lots of these deals out there. Okay. Yeah. If I go to a bank to buy a house for 150, I need 20% down, which is $30,000. All right. So if I'm making 10 grand per wholesale flip, how many wholesale deals do I need to do to get the 30 grand to put the down payment to buy the one house? Three. I got to do three. And so that's how simple I started thinking of it. Okay, I got to flip three houses real quick, take those profits, go over, put them as a down payment to buy that $200,000 house for 150. Now, what do I have? I have a $200,000 house for 150, but I put 30 grand down. So I have $80,000 in equity in that property. Yeah. So I turned 30 into 80 of value immediately, immediately yeah. just by that yeah. trade-off. Then what else do I have? I now maybe fix it up. Maybe I don't. And I put a tenant in there. And let's say I rent it out for 1500 bucks a month, right? Well, now I'm getting $18,000 a year in cash flow, hmm. right? Now, I probably have a mortgage that I got to pay off and, yeah. and different stuff, but like, I'm getting a certain amount of cash flow coming in. Plus mm -hmm. I have depreciation, plus I can write off expenses. There's all this value of owning real estate. Well, if I do five of those houses in the course of a year, I now have a million dollars worth of real estate hmm. off of 15 wholesale right, deals. Right. So I turned 150 grand into a million dollars worth of real estate, $400,000 in equity, plus constant cash flow and massive tax benefits. Yeah, Boom. <laughs> but it, it, All yeah. of a sudden the light bulb right. went off and I was like, I could do this right. because right. I could do this over here. And this was the gateway to get me totally. here. Number one was the most magical moment, realizing, right? Like understanding like, oh my goodness, this is actually doable. You know, it's not just, it's not just a concept anymore. I'm not seeing some dude on stage talk about it. And I actually cashed a check. And, that was, and my first deal was 40 grand. Yeah. So I didn't even have to do three deals. Yeah. I could have done right. one deal. Right. My biggest wholesale fee in 2019 was $65,000. Wow. For, for three hours That's worth of work. Crazy. And I'm not saying you're gonna do that. Because yeah. like most people yeah. don't. Proper like, expectations. Mo yeah, <laughs> most people screw right. it all up or right. do like what I did initially, which was quit. Yeah, right, I, right. Nine months, imagine going after a goal for nine months while everybody thinks you're absolutely insane. Right. And you're running out of money and you're going into yeah. credit card debt. And that's the crazy part too, is that's why I asked to make sure that it was like the profit on the deal because you were $30,000 in credit card debt. Your first deal was more than enough to get you out of debt Oh yeah, and get you into your next deal. Oh yeah, right. Um, it sounds like it sounds like your your dad was always really um, um, instrumental in giving you the aids that you were looking for to continue going along the path that you wanted to go down. How has that affected your parenting and mm. and helped you become a um, like to instill the same types of lessons? Oh, in your I kids? love that question. Yeah, it. First off, he was. Uh, the perfect role model for me. Yeah. Because my son Hudson is identical to how I was. Really? But he's even smarter than I was. And um, it's gonna be really interesting to how see. How old is he? Uh, he's 10 right now. Okay. He's okay. 10 right now. And it's been so fun as a parent being able to do some of the things that my dad did with me, yeah. but take my spin on it and even take it to the next level. So like, same concept. You wanna create, uh, he, we talk, we, we're big on language patterns in our house. <coughs> and you know, we don't have certain words that we say, like we don't use the word can't, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm always talking to him about, okay, you want that, let's create it, mm. right? So um, 
doing the same thing with the contracts. Yeah, and, yeah, that's and awesome. I'll front you the money. Let's go figure out a business model, and I'll work with him on modeling it all out. I bring him with me to all my rehab projects. He's been in a ton, ton of our advertisements. In fact, my best converting ads over the last four years have had Hudson in them. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen him. <laughs> yeah, and so he's just uh, just through exposure and proximity, he's already you know wheel spinning, wanting to do certain things. Yeah. But at the same time, he has a challenge that I never had, hmm. and it's my challenge too because I'm trying to teach him the value of hard work and that daddy driving a Lamborghini is not normal. Mm. And living in this house is not normal, and what it takes to create this lifestyle and not to be, you know, one of those kids that is entitled. Totally, really difficult. So for funny. Me. I just had the same exact conversation with Dean Graziosi over at his office, talking about the same stuff. Yeah. Um, are, is there anything that you do to try to make sure that they have that experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first off, I'm a member of a, a local men's group called the Chandler Compadres. We raise millions of dollars every single year for underprivileged kids all here in Chandler, Arizona. Hmm. And so I, I force them to get involved in all of our charity work. Hmm. And it's not charity work where you just give money. It's We're going to work. Yeah. We're going to deliver food. We're going to prepare food. We're going to deliver presents. We're going to help people you know, fix yeah. their houses up. Yeah. It's very hands-on. And so my kids have been very active in that. And um, there's probably not a month that goes by that we're not doing some kind of service like that back for our local communities, yeah. just so they can see. Perspective. This is what, yeah. how some people have to survive. And right. this is why you're so lucky and you need to be grateful for all of this stuff. Right. And I'm also very strict about electronics around my kids. Okay. So um, my son loves to game. He's a, he's a gamer, Yeah. not a football player. <laughs> he's, he's into gaming. Yeah. <laughs> and so we limit his his electronics usage. I won't give my kids a cell phone. Mm. Uh, they're freaking out because all their friends want and have cell phones. Yeah, of course, yeah. And you know, we're just the give just give them a flip phone. See how see how it goes. <laughs> well, we found a phone actually recently that is built for kids. So oh, really? We might okay. try that out once um, he gets a little older. Which all it can do is text and call. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. have any access to the internet or anything like that. Yeah. And so good. I, it's it, tough though. I if you have the if you have anything, because I talk to Dean all the time about yeah. this. Me and him are really good friends, and this is pretty much what we... We don't talk about real estate. Yeah. We rarely talk about business. We talk about our families and stuff, and we can go for hours trying to just mastermind, like, how do we pull this off properly? Because yeah. that, that would be the worst failure of my life mm. if my kids don't know how to deal yeah. with... Took everything for granted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the problem is, is that you genuinely have to take time on purpose to make sure that they don't feel that way because if you don't they'll default to that way because mm. that's just how they grew up you know um, so that's interesting I, I, you know I, my son is he's eight months old right now so we're, that, that's why I'm starting to ask some of these questions because I'm very curious on yeah. on how a lot of other people are family going discussions it. we do we do a Sunday family meeting okay where we sit around a table and, and it's no holds barred they yeah. can talk about drugs sex you know, anything yeah. that they are hearing on the bus, anything they hear with their friends, yeah. any words. Like we we had to cover the other day the word rape. Mm. A kid on the bus brought up and they started scre screaming the word rape for some reason. And yeah. uh, four or five kids got hauled off into the principal's office and that, that opened up the conversation. Well, what is rape? Yeah. What is sex? What is this? Right. What, like we go down this rabbit hole and it's like, oh man. 10 years old, that's about the right. time where they're going to start to get exposed to that. So totally. open-ended family discussions, get that 
consistent meeting yeah. where the kids know, even if they don't want to do it. Because the first, like, 10, they hated it. <laughs> hated it. They wanted to do anything but meet. And, and yeah. we'd be like, well, what, what do you guys want to talk about? Nobody would talk about anything. Yeah. But I didn't care because yeah. I just had to get the habit going. Right, right. It seems to be a lot about that trust barrier, too. Because I think that's why a lot of kids go get in trouble is because they just don't trust that their parents will react in a normal way if they expose them into what they're up to or what their mind is thinking about or what their friends were talking about and they think that all these bad things are going to happen if they're honest with their parents and it just creates this foundation of mistrust. Mm. I, from what I've, like, again, I'm, I'm a brand new parent so I'm not, figure it out. not trying to judge anybody or anything but that's just what I've seen and something that my wife and I are consciously going to be implementing um, when our son gets older is yeah. Just making sure that he trusts us completely. Yeah. That like we're not Travel with betraying that. Take take them with you. Uh, man, Travel yeah. with them as much as possible. Just that exposure makes them interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> moving on a little bit here to the education side of what you do. So you start doing a lot of real estate. Start flipping a lot of houses. Mm -hmm. um, start growing that side of the business. Around what period? Did you go, you know what, I think, I think I've think i learned a good enough amount of this to where I could actually probably help people that were in a similar position to where I was, and how did you get into that world? Yeah, so I became a, a, a millionaire by 28, a multimillionaire by 30. What, what, what year is this, by the way? Jeez Louise, I don't know, 2006-ish. Okay, like so that. right before it was a bad time to be in real estate. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. we were, I started, once I, broke that first deal, the deal started coming. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it up into the crash. I didn't get hurt on the crash because I was mm. quick turning the real estate. And I was also buying them really, really cheap. Yeah, the deal's good enough, the deal's yeah, good enough. Yeah, I was buying them way below the median. And so uh, once the crash happened, there was this period of like a few months where nothing happened and then all of a sudden people started poking their heads back up and realizing, oh man, everything's the dust is settling yeah, being finally. Fire yeah. sold. And uh, I went on this tear, and I probably bought 2,000 houses wow. during the crash. And it was unbelievable. Like it was Christmas. 08, 09 area time frame? At the end of 07, it started. Okay. I went down to, well, at, at the time, I was doing short sales and foreclosures. Uh, foreclosures and stuff like that. But then I had a friend that said, hey, I just bought a house down at the foreclosure auction. And I hadn't been down there in a long time. And I said, oh, yeah? And he goes, yeah, I paid 19 grand for it. And it was built in 2006. And it was a K-Hove home in the town of Maricopa, which is a little outside of the main, you know, metro area. But it's still, that was a $150,000 house for 19 grand. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So I went down to the foreclosure auction, and I camped out. And I saw all these houses being sold. And there was nobody down there at the time, really. There was just the, the OGs right. that were always kind of down there. And I showed up the next day with a pen and paper, and I started teaching myself the auction business. And so once I figured it out, we just went down there and started buying houses. And then things started to move real quick. Wow. I, I did a couple thousand houses, and um, in 2010, I started, in 2009, I started developing a software to sell the houses I was buying down at the auction. And at the time, it was pretty cutting edge because nobody was really using text marketing. Mm -hmm. Nobody was really using direct-to-voicemail marketing technology. And I built this little software that I could take a property and I can create email list, text list, and um, well, email list and phone number list. And I can blast off the property to people's emails and to their text and to their do what's called ringless voicemail, which now is 
popular, but yeah. back then nobody ever heard of it. Mm -hmm. And I was selling deals like within seconds of buying them. And everybody, all my competition was like, how are you doing mm -hmm. that? And so I get this wild idea that I'm gonna sell this software to the world. And that was the birth of Clever Investor. And okay. so many people coming to me saying, how do you do what you do? So in 2010, we, I started a company. We were gonna be part software, part education. It was kind of fulfilling that need within me mm -hmm. uh, to be a teacher. Okay. And I was uh, really good at real estate at the time. It had now been over 10 years, pretty much. And mm -hmm. so I was like, okay, let's go, let's do this. And I didn't think much of it. It was like a side hustle and it blew up. Mm. And within three years, Clever Investor became one of the biggest brands in the real estate education space. Yeah. And uh, I started to scale. And next thing I know, I woke up and I had 70, 80 team members. Wow. And all of a sudden, this world of being an entrepreneur started to happen. Because as a real estate investor, you're kind of a solopreneur. Mm. There's yeah. like maybe a small team. It's like... Yeah very linear, it's, it's not that difficult, but yeah. when you have an education company or you actually are building a real business, there's departments and there's processes and there's culture and there's uh, all the, this infrastructure that has to integrate to, make, mm. to pull it off. Yeah. And when you do hit on your business and it starts to scale, you go through these cycles of like, in the beginning, it's just like sales, sales, sales. Everybody's just making sales. Well, then all of a sudden, you got to fulfill yeah, all these sales, right. and it's like, oh my God, I gotta, I gotta service all these people, <laughs> and that became really scary, and it stretched my capabilities beyond anything I've ever experienced in the past, yeah. and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I was gonna say, what are the top like two, three lessons that you learned in that period? <sighs> uh, probably the most important thing is to pick the right team members and partners. That's probably the number one thing as you're just getting it going because a lot of people pick complementary or uh, like-minded partners. Mm. It's like we're both A-type personalities. We're both good at sales. Let's start a business together. And you actually need the polar opposite of yeah. you. And thankfully, I found that in a guy named Matt Lights. Mm. And Matt helped me co-found the business. And he was always cleaning up behind me and pulling the operations and the infrastructure together yeah. and that allowed me to thrive in the things that I was good at which was on the marketing side of things and building the brand and bringing people in for new opportunities and that kind of stuff. Uh, so that was really important. I've hired a lot of the wrong people that you start to develop this habit of um, hire really slow and fire really fast, that mm. kind of mantra. Culture is probably the most important thing within a team. If you screw it up, you're going to know it every every second of every day and is if it, you get it right you're going to know it yeah is there a size limit to that in terms of like you know if you're under 10 people is culture still that important i think i think where people especially entrepreneurs screw it up is most teams or companies know what they do and they're very clear on what they do we sell real, real estate software and do education and help people create freedom through real estate mm -hmm. okay we know what we do we know how we do it through these trainings and mm -hmm, these, mm -hmm. you know, live events and this other stuff. Uh, if you're really good, like Simon Sinek says, you know why you do it. Mm. Where, and that's hard sometimes to dig deep and figure out why. And that's the company yeah. uh, mantras and the vision uh, and the mission vision, statements, the mission and statements, all that stuff. Where a lot of entrepreneurs fail is figuring out what's in it for the team members if they help you accomplish that. Mm. That's the missing piece that a lot of us on the go fail to really just slow down and take the time to really model out because 
we're so uncertain of our future because yeah. it's all kind of happening fast that we don't know how to even communicate that to one of our team members to say, this is how your life's going to play out over the next three years if you help me achieve this big, bold, hairy goal. Mm, yeah. And the real good entrepreneurs know how to dial that in. And I didn't at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And I had to learn some of those painful lessons because you lose good people. You know, you, uh, Regrettable turnover is the worst in a business. Your yeah. people and your team are the most important assets you have. And if you screw it up and you lose somebody super valuable, I had my marketing guy get picked off by a competitor, offered him more money, and um, I didn't think it was gonna be that big a deal because we have ego, you know, and you're of kinda course, like, yeah. yeah, we'll find somebody I taught else. him everything he knows yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I did. Right. Uh, but two, three years of training somebody is invaluable. Mm. And when it happened, I felt it immediately. Yeah. It, I mean, I probably lost million, $2 million because of that regrettable turnover. Mm. Wow. And it's, it's uh, it all has to do with being able to clearly say, this is your path, yeah, and right. this is how you're going to create wealth alongside with me. Because I think you can have a big, bold vision as an entrepreneur, and as an intrapreneur, I can recruit other like-minded people into my business. You can still have a big vision that fits within my vision. Hmm. And together we get that alignment, and I believe that alignment equals velocity. Yeah. Without it, the friction causes problems at some point, and what happens in when you start making real money and everybody sees that you're making real money, because all of us are dumb entrepreneurs and we all do the same thing with Lamborghinis and nice houses, and we start traveling, and nowadays with social media, it's like, post a pic, post a pic. Yeah, totally. Well, your team members are watching everything you're doing as an owner. Yeah. And if you're getting super wealthy and they're struggling to pay their water bill, yeah. it's a problem. Mm. You know. But if they have a path, and it's very clear, and even the customer support person can have a path. You know, Maybe there's a limit, but then it's like, hey, with this position, this is your path. Yeah, right. But then if you're a player and you play full out and you set standards and you help create systems and processes and you think outside the box and you're, you take care of our students, I'm going to show you these other seats that we could put you in eventually. Hmm. Yeah. That's very difficult. It just took a long time for me to slow down enough to figure that out. Yeah, w was that just something that you kind of poked around and just failed enough to figure out the right way, like in a maze, you know, or was it no. resources, mentors, books? Mentors. Okay. You have to ask other people that have already gone through it yes. because uh, um, my one, the, the guy in college I was talking to you about before we started recording, yeah. I had one college professor, his name was Dr. Wilt, and he would say this thing to me. He was the only college professor that made an impact on me, and he would say, you need to integrate yourself with people of great wealth. And I never quite understood that. You need to integrate yourself with people of great wealth. And I, what does that mean? Just money? Yeah. Like just hang around people with money? Is that just the proximity is power conversation? Mm -hmm. He didn't just mean money. He meant wealth of knowledge too. Mm. And so I was lucky and smart enough to, because we moved around so much as a kid and I figured out how to influence people, I realized that a large part of getting other people on board with your vision and to help you out is just serving, just a, so I walk into every relationship. How can I serve you? How can I help? And I'll do. I'll serve for as long as it takes. Yeah. In exchange, I get proximity, and now I get to ask you these questions when I need you because you built a successful business. And if I want to learn podcasting, I'm coming to you. Yeah. Because right. I want to know what am I going to walk into? What are those booby traps? Right. And so I had to ask. I <laughs> I met a guy who actually founded. Um, his um, name is Todd Davis. He founded a company called LifeLock. Okay. actually sold it 
for $2.4 billion. Yeah, I was going to say, the LifeLock. The LifeLock <laughs> yeah, player, right? Yeah. Amazing human being. And so uh, I became friends with him and just being able to call him and just say, how did you deal with the growth? How did you deal with the culture? How did you raise the money? How did right. you deal with this? What would you do in this ex- you know, example? Mm-hmm. Having people like that in my corner and my Rolodex made the world a difference because it was clear to them. Yeah, right. It took them 10 seconds to tell right. me, do this, this, and this. So, I would have spent four days in a war room right. with whiteboards all over trying and to And still been out. wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. That's, um, it's so funny because I, I, I recently threw my first live event uh, this past uh, November. And in my talk, I was talking about that because, um, like I mentioned, I have an eight-month-old son. At the time, he was four or five months. And he was just you know, starting to figure out how to put his own pacifier in his mouth. Mm. You know, it was one of those like uh, stuffed animal ones, the Lubba Nubs. He's like just trying to figure out like where to kind of place it and put it in his mouth. And there was one time he was trying to put the pacifier in his mouth and um, it was upside down. The little dog was mm. upside down and he couldn't figure out that like it, the leverage was pulling the pacifier up. So he just kind of kept sticking it like <laughs> in his face, but it wouldn't go in, you know. And I was sitting there watching the whole thing unfold. And it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks about about mentors and exactly what you were just talking about because, it you know because uh, because of my exponential knowledge comparatively to his knowledge of the world right, um, which I know is a big bragging point to be yeah. that much smarter <laughs> than my four month old, um, but to illustrate the point, I know way more about how the world works than my four month old son does, and he was struggling with something that was just so simple, and all I had to do was reach out and flip it upside down and give it back to him and he would have been totally fine. And um, I find the same thing to be true of Mm. our mentors is that they just know so much more that they can look at that problem. Like you said, you're gonna take four or five days with whiteboarded out walls and like, you know, 17 books and resources in front of you pouring over it to try to figure out the solution to this problem that you have. And you can call up somebody, like, or you could just call up somebody who's been there, done that, walked through that exact same process, and they could be like, oh yeah, it's this. And you're like, okay, thanks. One, <laughs> it's like, one million simple. percent. You know, just one little And tweak. as an entrepreneur, you're in the woods. Yeah. So yeah. you are emotional, you're feeling, right. you, have, you have this lens that you're looking through. When somebody mm-hmm. has that outside perspective, yeah. they have that clarity that you don't, it, yeah. it really Go here. helps. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. This is Build Your Network. We talk a lot about networking, relationships, connections, and everything. And I, and I love, I, I can always tell somebody who, um, who has a valuable network of people around them because of what you just said in terms of like you're always leading with value, you're always like just looking to give to people. Um, and, uh, and that's really what differentiates, in my opinion, good networkers and bad networkers is, you know, the typical networker is the person that's always looking to take from you and always wants this and always wants that. Um, whereas somebody like you who has a really well-rounded network with some amazing people in it, it's because you've always been that person to be like, hey, what can I do to help you? What can I do to serve you? Um, so let's talk about the mentor thing. How, how do you, how do you, Cody, like, as an entrepreneur, get somebody who's worth two billion dollars to agree to getting on the phone with you once every couple of months or whenever you have a question? You know, how do how do you even like literally how do you bring up the topic of conversation? You know, like some somebody out there listening that maybe, you know, ha- knows some people, has some contacts but they've never gotten permission to be able to just call them up and ask them a question or two. Yeah. How, do you pro- how do you approach that? Well, f- f- first I would say let's, let's just look at how people actually work and operate because I think if your expectation is you're a new entrepreneur, you haven't really done much in mm-hmm. business yet, you're not going to walk up to a billionaire and say, <laughs> let's hang out. Right. It's not the proximity and, and the 
time, people as they're more successful, they value time way more than anything else. And so the chances of you doing that without it being a family member or somebody walking up and saying, hey, help this person. Because third party endorsements will get you that. Yeah, right. 99% of us don't even know one person that's removed from the billionaire right, type guy. Right. And so I would say, I didn't start just walking over to Todd and saying, hey, yeah. let's hang out. Let, you know, I'm, right. Will you be my mentor? Which is what you get on DMs <laughs> yeah. all the time now through social media. Um, it was a evolution and a progression. And it's like when I was broke living with my girlfriend and we wanted a house. Right, and that was our big dream. So as I started becoming successful in real estate, we were gonna go buy our first house. Well, that was like a $250,000 house is what we wanted, mm -hmm. right? Well, you, you get the $250,000 house and you think it's a big deal and now you're surrounded by $250,000 neighbors, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. so that's what you're doing, except for the one neighbor across the street, he, he's got a $600,000 house and you're kind of like, let's go get to know that guy, mm, yeah. right? And then you go see his house and you're like, man, his house is way better than our house. His friends are different than our friends. Like we gotta yeah. hang out, we gotta start getting proximity to this person. And then all of a sudden you work and you get enough money to buy the $600,000 house or the million dollar house. And every time I would look across the street, there was always somebody more successful than me that had a different set of friends, different network and all that stuff. And so it was a progression as I became more successful in business and I started companies or failed at things, I would always identify a couple people in my proximity that were doing better than me. Yeah that I would serve and just hang around, but it wasn't like 30 levels up. It was just yeah, the next right. level up. Right. And through those relationships, I slowly worked my way up. And I think a lot of people have this sense where um, they, they want everything yesterday and they feel like you know, they have to get it done right away. And I think of it like I couldn't be anything else but an entrepreneur. Mm. I love real estate so much and I'm so grateful that I found, found something that I'm passionate about but I couldn't be a normal nine to fiver. Mm. It's not in my DNA, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I'd be a horrible employee. Yeah, I hear that. And so <laughs> for me, it's a lifestyle and I don't, even when things are tough and there's a lot of times things are tough. We started off yeah. before I even started saying, you know, there's a lot of times if I could snap my fingers and do anything but be an entrepreneur, but I was passionate and great at it, I'd do that because yeah. it's so difficult to do what we do at our level and take on the weight and pain and pressure of all the surrounding things that go into being a successful entrepreneur. So I think of it like a marathon. I'm, this is my life. I'm just gonna take it one step at a time. And if I get in the room where there is somebody where I kind of identify like I wanna have a relationship with that person, yeah. I am bold enough to go up to them and I try to get other people to give me those third party endorsements and I try yeah. to just introduce myself and just use whatever skills or resources I have to serve them for as long as it takes. And eventually I start working my way in. Yeah, yeah. The other way to do it is just to cut a check. Hmm. And I think nowadays there's a lot of um, masterminds. We're in one together. Yeah. You know, this is how we're, our relationship is really starting. Right is just be cutting a check and not thinking of it like, oh man, this is an expense expense for you know, my right. business. This is an investment into the future. And I walk into that room yeah. um, knowing that there's a hundred badass entrepreneurs in there. And I don't have expectations. I don't walk in there and go, oh, I know that person, I'm gonna get something from them. I know that person, yeah. I'm gonna get something from them. I right. walk in and I just say, look, I don't know what's gonna come out of this, 
but it was worth it for me to just put myself in proximity to all these amazing people and I'm just gonna serve every single person in the group and let's see what happens. Yeah, and right. that's how I roll. And when you think of it long-term like that and you have that energy and that attitude, guys like you see it. Yeah, right. You know, yeah, and that, now I have an opportunity to hang out with you. Yeah, that marathon thinking is really, I think, where the rubber you know, meets the road is because I think that's why people don't place a large value on actively building relationships because they don't see what the immediate ROI is. They don't, they don't see like, you know, well, if I go there in 12 years from now, somebody that I met at this thing is gonna introduce me to this one guy that's gonna lead to this partnership that's gonna bring in $100 million. Like, there's no way to really know what's going to happen or come from a relationship. It's just the faith that if you put goodwill into good people, good things are gonna happen. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you gotta be difficult. a master of your craft. Yeah, yeah. got to be at least competent like, yeah, at what yeah, you do. Yeah, I think that's the other layer of <laughs> right. it is when you're not competent and you yeah. don't have good capabilities, it's very difficult to get power players to right. take you seriously. For any length of time anyway. Like yes. you're going to be exposed in a pretty short amount of time. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, I live, eat, breathe, sleep, marketing and real estate. <clears throat> I do it every second of every day. It's all yeah. I think about like an obsessed maniac. Yeah. And I study great people and I study my craft every second of every day. Ask my wife, you know, she's like, dude, you never shut off. Yeah. And it's like, because I'm obsessed. Uh, and if, when, when people raise their intensity and their enthusiasm level amongst the crowd of averageness, yeah. other people that want more out of life notice that intensity totally. and then it's like gravity. Yeah. And that's a great, um, a great answer for the mentorship question too is I've asked that question to a lot of people that I've talked to, and that's ultimately one of the biggest things, is that they want to see that you're actually willing to do the things that they advise you to do. Because like you said, their time is extremely valuable, and they have so many people that ask them for things all the time, and everybody has the story of when they first started seeing success, and somebody asked them for help, and you're just dying to help somebody because you've figured something amazing out, and you're just like, oh man, here's exactly what I did. And then six months later, hey, did you do that thing? oh no, this happened, and then this happened, and then this other thing happened. And successful people start to realize right away that not everybody deserves their advice, and not everybody deserves their time. Mm -hmm. So if you can be one of those people that gets in, becomes good at something, is competent at what you do, or an expert level at what you do, um, then you're gonna be, you're, like you said, you're going to start attracting the people that start noticing those things in you, because that's the same exact way that they were when they were at that point in their career. And they can empathize with that situation. They see you taking action, and they wanna be a part of the success. You know, people that are successful want to help people. It's just that 99% of people will never do what they actually are told to do, because I don't know what it is. Like, they're risk averse, they have limited mentality, think whatever. Your, think about the evolution of most people's success. How many times did they get their time wasted? Yeah. Right. You just get hardened mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur mm -hmm. to, yep. to it's, make especially, people jump through hoops. Especially realizing the time is really our only asset that we have. Yep. You know, like you, your time is worth so much, you can't just give it away to people who are just going to squander it and go back to you know working at McDonald's and never wanting to do anything else in their life. Yep. So, um, listen, man, I, I, we could we could just keep <laughs> talking and talking and talking. So, if I don't wrap it up, uh, we'll be here for a while. So. Um, I got to ask this question out of the 370 plus episodes we put out. This is the one question I've asked every guest that's come on. Who you know or what you know? Which one of those is more important and why do you think that? Who you know? A million percent. Without question. I'm not the sharpest hack in the 
tool shed. Is that what it is? Is that the same thing? I don't know. <laughs> it sounds yeah. good. I'll roll yeah. with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, one thing I do have is enthusiasm, though. You know, I'm yeah. very enthusiastic and I'm passionate about the things that I'm into. And um, who you know is vitally more important. Like Dr. Wilt said, mm-hmm. integrate yourself with people of great wealth. Yeah. Wealth, wealth of knowledge, wealth of relationships, wealth. Yeah. You know, right. and so. Right. Uh, it's opened up more doors. Masterminding and just being around other power players has opened my eyes, pushed me beyond any you know limits that I've ever had. And I still find myself, every opportunity I, I ever get, if I could put myself in a room where I'm sweating and I'm nervous and I don't want to talk, yeah. e- even when I was at the 100 Mill Mastermind introducing yourself, it's like yeah. you go blank and oh, you're like, totally. oh my God, I'm so nervous. Totally. And that's such a great feeling to yeah. know that Man, that's the right room to be in. Yes, right. and things are about to change because otherwise, you know, my friends, the people I'm comfortable around, yeah. uh, the reason that they're such good friends is, you know, because I'm comfortable around them, right. you know. Right. But if I start hanging out with people at a couple level, levels up, I start getting real nervous, and it's like, oh man, yeah, here comes the next level of life. And, well, and you, you either you're either forced to level up or get out. Ultimately, is what happens. Yeah. Right? You're either forced. You're exposed. To, yeah, yeah. You're right. exposed to a higher set of principles. Mm, yeah. Which is just a nice way of saying rules, right? There's <laughs> a higher set, and, and that's all. Standard like, of living. Life is yeah. literally a game, and if you think about the gamification of the whole thing with business and in life, it's just how many times can I keep getting exposed to the net next set of rules? Yeah. And that exposure then builds your capabilities. Then for a while you master them, and then finally you get exposed to the next layer. Right. You can't you can't jump four steps. You got to go one at a time, mm. and uh, that's why I would say who you know, because what you know will come, yeah. and what you don't know can be offset by who you know. Yeah, yeah, and as as long as you got that competence, right? Like we talked about, like if you have that that level of competence, or at least ambition, or hard work, what, whatever you know, combination of that is, I think that the people that you get around, you'll always learn more from them than you will a book anyway. The, the quality that you can't teach. Yeah, right. Ambition. Totally. Yeah. So, moving on, last segment here, man. Uh, got it, like I said, I gotta get you out of here. Um, last segment, random round, just a few quick random questions, quick random answers, ready? Okay. What profession, other than your own, do you think that it would just be fun to attempt? Ooh, fun to attempt. I'd love, to, I, I think being an actor would be really cool. Yeah. I would love to be an, a, a, a a good actor, not like a right. porn actor, like a real good <laughs> actor, right? Could I be like a Tom Hanks well, if, caliber If you want actor. viewership, though, I mean, porn you know, might be the way I, to go. I, I definitely would not be a good porn <laughs> actor. It would be so awkward. Everybody would just shut it off. Yeah. If you could sit on a park bench with someone, past or present, chat for an hour, who would it be? Hmm. That's tough for so many reasons. I'd want to sit down with my dad's dad. Hmm. He passed away when he was 13. Hmm. Wow. I would probably sit down with him. I know that the answer everybody wants to hear is, you know, some, yeah. you know, Bill Gates style type guy. But, um, yeah, I would, I, wanna, I would love to talk to my dad's dad. Yeah. He's super interesting to me. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. Um, I wake up every single morning without an alarm clock. Haven't had one in, I don't know, 25 years. Uh, get up probably right around 4.50, 5-ish. 
you know, right around 5 a.m. I get up, I slam some water, I throw on my workout clothes, I make some shakes and protein type stuff, and I go to the gym. I hit the gym hard. I have a personal trainer because I'm lazy otherwise, <laughs> and I need that accountability in my life and that yep. push. And I also will, I waste too much time at the gym if mm. I don't have somebody just moving me from process to process. And so uh, I do that. Then I make sure I get back early enough. I don't check news. I don't really check my phone. I don't do any social, any of that stuff. Uh, I come back. I, I probably do a little bit of meditation and grateful time. And then I make breakfast for the kids. I get them off to school. Then I put on my suit and I go to war. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, or videos? Um, videos for me. Um, I do listen to a, a lot of audios. I can't stand reading physically. Mm. It drives me crazy. It's, I, I go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, but I like video or audio. Um, what is your go-to pump-up song? Mm. I, I like like 90s hip-hop. Yeah. You know, so probably Notorious. Got it. B.I.G., something like that. What putting, Juicy. <laughs> putting, putting business aside. What would be something that you're just not very good at? Math. Just <laughs> anything that has to do with math. <laughs> Writing. I'm horrible yeah. at spelling. You're bad with math unless there's a dollar sign. In the yeah, front. yeah, yeah. I can figure that yeah. kind of stuff. Uh, horrible at spelling. No, I, you know, I'm very spatially oriented. I'm not good with, you know, long processes that take a really long period of time. Like I. I think writing a book would be very difficult for me. Mm. Um, I've written a book, but it was a yeah. real estate book. Yeah. But like, yeah, I would have a hard time with that. I would need to bring in some reinforcements. Totally, yeah. Um, as we get everything wrapped up here, what is one place online where we can find you active the most? Uh, one place, well, the place I want you to go is YouTube because I'm putting the most okay. energy into that lately. Okay. I'm probably most well-known for my Instagram. Okay. I have a million plus followers on Instagram, so a lot of people follow me there, and I post every single day on Instagram, but I'm putting a ton of love and energy into YouTube. I wish I would've done it years earlier, so at Clever Investor on YouTube. Cool. Uh, if you wanna learn real estate, real estate investing, that's the main channel focus. Cool, uh, so. awesome. Anything you wanna hear about Cody, head over to at Clever Investor on YouTube and on Instagram, if you're over on Instagram as well. Um, that's it, I, that's, that's all I got for you, man. I appreciate you coming on the show. It's, I had a fantastic time. Dude, it was amazing. Thank so you so much. So much good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it. Can't wait till next time. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. As most of you know, I talk a lot about giving value to others. This podcast is one of the ways that I do that since all the content from the show is totally 100% for free. And when people ask me how they can add value to me, one of the ways I tell them is to head over to iTunes, hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and review. This not only gives me valuable feedback on what you think about the show, but it also helps me with Apple's algorithm. So please, 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 if you have not done that yet, head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review for the show. It adds tremendous value and it only takes a minute or two of your time. Have a wonderful rest of your day and remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.